Welcome to Guilty Treasures, a podcast about everything you ever loved and were afraid to talk about. I'm your host, Ann Kern. And I'm also your host, Emily Cardamus. And this week we have on my friend Eleanor Pollitt to talk about a very specific and very interesting uh, <laughs> topic. I don't know why I paused before topic. I think I was unsure on whether or not topic would do it enough justice. Uh, <laughs> but basically she wanted to talk about unproduced or otherwise changed Movie and TV scripts is probably the best way to put it. Yes, so early version drafts that vary wildly from the produced version that you see on screen. Yeah, it's kind of a mix of like, I don't know, some some that seem like editorial decisions, some mm-hmm. that are wildly different, uh, <laughs> and somewhere like that that heart is clearly shining through somewhere and maybe maybe that could have gotten polished a little bit more and we we missed out on something a little bit but the the breadth of the results of this conversation is pretty wild in a good way in a great way i I think it is probably safe to say that this is the only podcast in which both well all three iron man the west wing and theodore rex have ever come up in the same conversation without it being a wild tangent it is all the same connected conversation (laughs) and i have one small confession that we did not get to in the episode which is that i have seen the film theodore rex i did watch it not long after it came out and i did in all seriousness like actively choose to rent and watch it i was not subjected to this film i i really did think oh it's it's like um you know these other movies that i love but also there's a dinosaur that that is definitely, and Whoopi Goldberg is there. This sounds like my jam. I admit I do not recall the film particularly well, and that may be a blessing. <laughs> I can't believe we we somehow skipped over that very that very important fact. I remember I have I have these sort of fleeting like fever dream like <laughs> snippets of what this what this film was like. I do I do remember the the suit being fairly good, but I also vaguely recall hearing some stories behind the scenes stories about problems with the animatronics and with uh things like that. So I th- I think there's a lot of um for some other other podcast maybe there is there is or maybe we'll just do another episode. I mean, nobody says we can't. We'll just bring somebody in to talk about Theodore Rex. I do need to ask this suit. Was it like a and granted I understand it's on a large dinosaur, but are we yeah. talking like a uh, like sharp suit or are we talking like a david burns style like way too like oversized poorly fitting suit yeah kind of poorly i mean it was okay. it's not really like a suit suit it's it's more casual i think they were trying to make the dinosaur kind of tom hanks i see um i think that was really what they were going for it, right. it feels very tom hanks uh ask in the in the the sort of costuming choices i think that was what they were going for and on that note we will <laughs> with with that information dear listeners Please join us on this journey that we are about to take. Come down this rabbit hole with us. Yes. No episode feels more fitting for that. (laughs) Further warning as well, just for the audio sake of things. I am sitting at my version of of an office, which is I am at a desk-shaped item. And I am sitting on a deck chair, so I'm going to try and stay very, very still. Because this thing does not like being... Like, the sound it makes if I move more than about three millimeters in any direction, it's truly astounding. (laughs) Uh, Well, you and your deck chair aside, thank you so much for coming on the podcast tonight. We're so excited to have you. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to be on. Um, If you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, talk a little bit about what you do, who you are, and then introduce the topic you brought to talk about today. Absolutely. I'm Eleanor Pollitt. 
And the life achievement I'd really like to bring to the start of this podcast is this one time that I fully and fairly deliberately ignored Will Smith on an escalator. As the... (laughs) You see, the rest of my life kind of pales in comparison to that. (laughs) So... (laughs) That's really what I wanted to bring to this experience. I'd like to stress, I didn't realise it was Will Smith at the time, and that he was being very nice, and he thought I was a fan, and I looked him right in the eyes, and I looked right away again, and I saw... I don't know what it was I saw in his eyes as I looked away. Disappointment, maybe. After Earth had just come out, so I don't know if he thought it was about that. (laughs) More seriously, I am a recently graduated student in creative writing. I specialise in screenplays, which is thematically similar to what the topic I'm about to bring, which I will get to in a moment. What I do for a living is it changes from day to day. I work on a lot of movies in various functions. The ones that are cool to talk about are so heavily NDA'd that even the mention of their name is actually illegal. And the ones (laughs) that aren't NDA'd have never come out, because that's how it is sometimes. So I promise I've worked in movies. Let's put it there. <laughs> and yes, we're supposed to have a topic for this. Yes. Um, something that I kind of believe when you were telling me about this podcast and I was listening to all the episodes is that people who have passion for anything in any capacity have the want to look inside of it. People in any profession that discuss sort of casual consumers of content are the people that are doing it correctly, in my opinion. Anyone buying a DVD of Die Hard just to listen to the director's commentary, which I have not done, are doing it wrong, as far as I'm (laughs) concerned. I do think it's the case that if you are passionate about something, you want to look inside of it. And I am passionate about movies, and the way I find most interesting to look inside of it are the screenplays of those movies. So what I have brought are various versions of screenplays from movies that are heavily different to, or were not actually made in the same way as the film that was then produced. This is such a specific thing. And I really, really love it because of that. <laughs> um, how did how did you like? I guess like get into this. Like, did you just like find a movie? Like, did you find out about like one movie, and then that did that lead to like other ones? Yes, in many ways. When you start. As anyone does when they have watched a movie about 30 minutes and they realise they're not going to watch the rest of it. They start Wikipediaing, you know, who's in it. Oh, really? They went on to pretty much nothing. Oh, okay. And you start realising the amount of things that have to line up in a row to make a film good is ridiculous. And the one that really made that true for me and the one that I will be bringing later is uh, Iron Man from 2008. I think most people that watch it, myself included, sort of believe that that film was fully formed. As you watch it, you think everything as it came on screen was intended, and this was a fully intended piece when they wrote it, and then they passed it on to the actors, and the actors act the lines they were given. And it wasn't that at all. The people that made Iron Man, and the script that version that I found, which is uh, Salmon number two, they all get various numbers when they're various drafts. They don't say, this is draft number two, they say this is the draft green or draft salmon. And this was draft salmon number two, so I don't know what happened to salmon number one. But this was the one I found on Reddit, so we're going to go with it. It's from 2007, so it was fairly close to the actual production. And you start reading it and you realise, yeah, the bare bones of the script were there, but the actual dialogue they say is massively different to what you get. And while it is a very small change, 
it changes fundamentally your perception of the movie. And it's this element of, I've met so many people in so many capacities that bring so much to movies that you wouldn't have thought of. I've met this guy, he's absolutely wonderful, he's so cool, um, who defined how Paddington was going to move in the Paddington movie, which is not something you think about, because it's like, well, it's just how he moves. Someone has decided that, but you don't think there were meetings about it. And this guy, <laughs> this guy, like, had long, arduous meetings about how to make Paddington move with teams. And that's the sort of thing that makes me excited. Because you think of the script as it was done when it came out and then they finished it. What happened in Iron Man is, while they stuck with the fundamental, he's going to get captured by terrorists. He's going to, sorry for the spoilers, he's going to create a suit and become a superhero, those story beats all remain the same, but the words they say change. And it's so fundamentally different that I find it deeply impressive. It just sort of, it makes me happy to know that it's not just one person who's a genius doing it all in one room and it's done. It's such an iterative process. They work so hard to make it all work together. Yeah, I, I think it, it's often difficult for people who are not in the film industry in any way and don't know anyone who is to understand what a collaborative and lengthy process it is. So on some level, I think we're all aware of these iterations that happen with films. And you can see, you know, you watch behind the scenes footage and you can see the, the special effects being added in or the editing or the music. And, and so we think that we understand that, but I'm not sure if we can fully understand it until you start to get on like a much smaller scale than most people usually interact with their media. So do you remember like the first time that you you saw a movie and like you understood that about it, that it, that it was all of these pieces working together? Like, is there, do you have like something crystallized in your mind that way? I've never gotten to that point yet. It's just constant discovery. Every single time I work with someone new and they tell me something about film, I learn about something I've never learned about before. And it's always so exciting. I don't think there was ever a start point and I don't think there'll ever be an end point. It's such a weird industry and there's so much that happens in it. Now I do have a couple of samples from a couple of scripts which I think are fairly interesting and I'd really love to bring them just because I feel like they're so cool. Now I'd like to say I don't think these scripts are in any way objectively bad. I think things are objectively, you can't look at a script and say this would have made a bad movie because there's so much that happens after that point that you can't say that for certain. However, there are elements of this and you read it and you think, oh okay, they had a reason they changed this. For instance, the original way that Iron Man begins is that he is sitting in a Humvee in, I believe, Afghanistan with a lot of soldiers all around him. Like, Tony Stark's just sitting there, he's a billionaire, he's being protected by these soldiers, and they start talking. And one of the soldiers, uh, who in the original script is called Pratt, and in this script is called Jimmy, starts off by saying, Is it true you're 12 for 12 with last year's Maxim cover girls? This line remains consistent with both. The second line remains consistent as well. Tony says, Excellent question, yes and no. March and I had a schedule conflict, but thankfully the Christmas cover was twins. Then it starts to deviate because one of the uh, soldiers wants to take a picture. And original film, I've got a transcript here. It says, The soldier next to him, Jimmy, raises his hand. Tony says, you're kidding me with a hand up, right? Jimmy says, is it cool if I take a picture with you? Tony says, yes, it's very cool. 
So then he starts taking the picture, and Tony says, I don't want to see this on your MySpace page. You get an idea of who Tony is. He's kind of cool. He doesn't mind taking a picture with Soldier. He's with it with the kids because he knows what MySpace is, because it was 2008. <laughs> but the Tony in the original script's a very different guy. So he's had the same 12 for 12, the Maxim Covergirls line. And then he says, anyone else? You, with the hand up. Now, Jimmy, who is in this script, Pratt, says, It's a little embarrassing. Tony says, Join the club. Pratt says, Can I take a picture with you? And Tony says, Are you aware that Native Americans believe photographs steal a little piece of your soul? And then he says, Not to worry, mine's long gone, far away. Now, the Tony you get, or at least you can give me your opinions on this after, the Tony you get in the original is someone I think he's kind of showing off too much with his intelligence. He's just going like, oh, have you heard about this thing that Native Americans believe photographs steal a piece of your soul, which is problematic in a number of ways. But even leaving aside that, the elements of, for instance, in the finished version, he says, is it cool if I take a picture with you? And he says, yes, it's very cool. And he says, you're kidding me with the hand up, right? He gets rid of all... In the original script, it says, it's a little embarrassing, and Tony says, join, join the club. He's kind of mocking the soldier. With you're kidding me with the hand up, right? He is instead kind of joining in with banter rather than just antagonising the soldier. Or at least that's how I perceive these changes in the script. The element I do find interesting in all of these Iron Man changes, though, is... The vast majority of these script changes were on the day, fully improvised, mostly by John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. They fully changed the script to fit their own needs. They fiddled around with it a lot. I think they had quite a lot of footage to deal with towards the end because they had way too much. A secondary scene that happens not long after that is uh, Tony's just won an award in Vegas and he doesn't turn up to collect the award. He's too busy gambling on the tables and like meeting hot women. And in both versions, Rhodey turns up to complain at Tony for not turning up to collect his own award. And he presents Tony with the award as he's at the roulette table. In the original script, it's slightly different. In the movie you've seen, the transcript for it goes, Rhodey turns up and he's like, you're getting an award. And Tony says, of course, I'd be deeply honoured. And it's you, so that's great. So when do we do it? And Rhodey says, it's right here. Here you go. Tony says, there it is. That was easy. And then goes, I'm so sorry. Rhodey says, yeah, it's okay. Tony says, wow, would you look at that? That's something else. I don't have any of these floating around, like holding up the award. And then he immediately puts down the award. I think he hands it to a, to one of the girls around him and he starts going right back to gambling. And he says, give me a hand, will you? Give me a little something, something. And he sort of rolls the dice in his hand and he makes one of the hot girls blow on the dice. And then he holds the dice out to Rhodes. And Rhodes says, I don't blow on a man's dice. Tony says, come on, honey bear. Which is a line that is fairly, you don't really notice it in the moment. It's just a very fast discussion. It's fine that it's a fast discussion because you don't want to focus on any of the lines. It's just to establish that they know each other, they're kind of relaxed with each other, they make fun of each other a lot. Or at least Tony makes fun of Rhodey and Rhodey is fine with that. The version you get in the original is Tony talking to the hot girls as Rhodey approaches. Now what Tony is saying as he is gambling to the hot girls which is how they are phrased in the script, just to make that clear. Uh, they are all called the hot girls in the script. <laughs> Great. I don't want to <laughs> comment on that. That's just how they 
how they call him. <laughs> so Tony says, and I, all of this is entirely verbatim from the original script. So your limbic system is positively throbbing. A Curlian photograph of us right now, occupying this space, would show serious subatomic particles being exchanged between us, with a rapidity that transcends. Are you getting this? You will be quizzed. And now he sees Rhodey pulling up gla uh, glaring, is what it says after the script. So what you're getting from Tony in this version is he is lecturing them on a slightly incorrect version of physics, or at least physics as the screenwriter has probably put down as a placeholder. He's kind of lecturing these hot girls on science, which presumably you're supposed to imagine they clearly don't know, and he is the smart man who at the roulette table can tell them all about physics. It continues on in, in many ways to get worse. So they they have the argument about, oh, sorry, yeah, I thought you were going to give me this award. And Rhodey puts the statue down on the roulette table. And Tony says, it belongs to my old man. They should have given it to him. Rhodey says, what's wrong with you? A thousand people came here tonight to honor you and le you leave them with an egg on their face? This award means something, Tony. It's bigger than you. And then Tony says, hold that thought a sec and starts gambling again. The version of Tony you get is once again kind of antagonistic, doesn't care about anything, and Rhodey is giving a speech that, I mean, I don't think people talk among people that way, especially not if they're friends, they don't say, what's wrong with you, a thousand people came here tonight to honour you, it's not a friendly banter. It's also not a serious conversation because they're at a roulette table. So it would kind of, if you <laughs> filmed that as is, it wouldn't work. Yeah, setting setting aside the, the thing about Kirlian photography, which is, oh boy, really, that was what they used as a placeholder? I have some issues with that. But <laughs> especially for Tony Stark, seriously, he would know better than that. But um, it seems like the sort of defining characteristic, if you had to boil Tony Stark as a character down to one word, I think a lot of people would go to ego. But I think in this original script, it's sounds like it's about Tony Stark's ego being a problem for everyone else. And in the Favreau Downey Jr. version, they've managed to make it so that his ego is a problem for him as well. Yeah. That there's a um there's something of of like a self-loathing that he's internalized that explains why he's doing these things beyond just his own sense of self-importance, that there's something deeper. And especially in this scene, like talking about his father, they've written that on the page of that he has this chip on his shoulder about his dad, but they haven't let him internalize that and express it in a way that people will pick up on without having to be smacked with a fish in yes. the head, you know, to get the idea. I've met a lot of people who do screenplays professionally and in an amateur fashion, including myself. I'm very much on the amateur side of things. And I think that a lot of people on either side of the fence on that seem to often worry that the actor can't portray those sorts of things and they need to write it out, write it down and that you won't get it that Tony has daddy issues if he doesn't explicitly say it every page. And it's a, it's a lack of trust in both the actor and the audience, but not a, a distrust that's unfounded from anything, just one that is just bought from nerves of, if I don't write this down, the people reading this who are funding this film are not going to get it, and they're going to say this film is about nothing. It's one of these two-handers of, there's always going to be that push and pull between the screenwriter and the actor, and in this case, the actor wins, because when they improv it, it's so much better. The final part of that mm. scene is Tony losing a lot of money on the roulette table. And, finished film, uh, Rhodes sees that he's lost all the money and he says, that's what happens. And Tony says, worst things have happened, I think we're going to be fine. Um, and then they discuss with each other and the scene ends. Uh, Tony says, yeah, don't know what was more exciting, winning it or the fact that I don't care I just lost it. Rhodey says, 
everything's funny to you. And Tony says, no, you're not funny. Which is, it's a very different Tony. It's a much more brutal Tony. It's really interesting, too, to really hear the change between showing and telling uh, between the two scripts. And it's making, like, the gears in my head turn of, like, like, obviously you'd said a lot of this was improvised, but, like, I'm curious as to, like, what necessitated all the changes. Like, was there almost, like, here's the version of the script that we're going to use to get it funded, and then now it's funded, we can have fun with it. Like, it makes me think about, like, what are all of the, like, motivations for everything thing behind it uh because like that's a that's a significant change you know you yeah. could say that like sure the actors you know they let the actors do their jobs they let them improvise but like you're getting a let that original script is very feel like it leans very heavily on like this is comic book iron man and he's a scientist and he knows all these things versus like treating it like you're introducing a character to an, an, an audience that doesn't need anything like that nothing has made me happier than hearing you get just as in- invested in this as I have. <laughs> this is my life. This is everything. I yell about people on the street and <laughs> I just yell at people. Have you have you read the original though? It's so different. <laughs> it's so strange. And you have to wonder, as you said, it's not just the actor having fun with it. Something happened in discussions of character and will people like the person we're putting on screen. Somewhere in the miasma of how films get made, they decided we're going to make Tony not necessarily nicer, but kind of like he can have more fun with it. Like he's having a fun time, he's a fun guy, and we can internalize the daddy issues and the rage. And that can stay beneath the surface. It also feels like they made him a character that feels like he could be redeemed. Like, that first version mm, is pretty yeah. deep in that, like, that harshness where it's like, if you make a protagonist so unlikable, no one's going to connect with him. No, I mean, they basically wrote Sam Rockwell's character. Um, yes. Th- that he ultimately wound up playing. And it's so th- so it almost makes it, like, even even hearing that dialogue, I'm feeling it more like a, that, that kind of vibe than it's hard for me to, I can't imagine Robert Downey Jr. saying those lines. I am bouncing in my chair right now. Sam Rockwell was the original <laughs> casting decision. Oh, was he oh, really? Yes. I did That's not know that. That's why they brought him in as Justin Hammer in the second movie. He was the original casting decision. Oh, wow. Because they I didn't, didn't think know that. they didn't think they could get the insurance money to get Robert Downey Jr. John Favreau wanted him. He was always the first choice for John Favreau, but the studio wanted Sam Rockwell because he was easier to get. So this version is the Sam Rockwell Tony Stark. That makes a lot of sense. I'm very curious about when exactly. I mean, see, I'm a huge Iron Man fan, um, and particularly of of that film and of Favreau's version of him. And um, I was actually at the Comic Con panel where Favreau announced this and brought Downey Jr. on stage for the first oh, time, no. and, and his ca- his his casting was announced. And at that point, I'm like, how much did they have? Where where was this project at? Like, because you don't see that part of it. You're seeing this on some level, like a fairly corporate presentation at that point, right? You know, so you see the advertising and and you know there's all of this stuff kind of boiling behind the scenes but you don't usually have access to it in in a real way it's something that i'm always very curious about like what's what's beneath the veneer of of these announcements yeah exactly yeah this is everything i am about to be honest um and that's just one of them that's the mildest version i could find because the actual story beats didn't change um one that i also really wanted to bring have either of you watched the west wing I have not. I have not either. I've seen I've seen bits and pieces yeah, of it. Yeah, I have a lot of a lot of there's a lot of cultural osmosis I think with the yeah. West Wing. We've heard about storylines and characters. I was hoping you'd say you hadn't watched it. I have a challenge round for you. Oh dear. Ooh, okay. So, 
Almost all of the characters on the West Wing that were cast in the first pilot episode remained until the very last episode of the last season. Apart from one who was massively unpopular from the moment she was introduced, and immediately, about halfway through the season, they started cutting her episodes down because they realised no one liked her. And then by the end of the season, she disappeared. No one talked about her again. Her name was Mandy. She was, Everyone said that she got put on the Mandy bus. And for sort of early 2000s TV, everyone talked about characters disappearing as being put on the Mandy bus. Now, I have a pilot draft version of the West Wing pilot where it introduces Mandy. And I have the shooting script version of when they introduce Mandy. I'm going to read out small excerpts of each of her introducing scenes. And I want you to tell me, based on the knowledge that she got removed from the show because she was so unpopular, which of the versions was the final shooting script. Okay. Mm, okay. So, round one. Act two. Fade in. Exterior Washington Street day. Mandy is driving a little too fast in her BMW convertible and talking on her cell phone. She cruises through a red light. Mandy into phone. Bruce. Bruce. Bruce, I may have just gotten back into the business this morning, but I didn't come by way of a turnip truck, you know what I'm saying? You faffed me around on this and I'm going to get cranky right in your face. Now, I was your source on 443. Big fat byline above the fold. I think it's time we play what you've done for me lately. Mandy sees the flashing red lights of a police car in her rearview mirror. She doesn't register a reaction, but simply pulls to the side and keeps talking on the phone. Mandy into phone. I don't want to hear that you're gonna try, Bruce. This isn't gym class. I said gym class. Gym class. Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. Because it's important in gym to try, but it's not necessary. Look, Bruce, it was a simple metaphor. Now, for the rest of the scene, the police officer attempts to get license and registration from Mandy while she continues to ignore him on the phone. And the final line of the scene is Mandy interphone. Listen, I'm under arrest. I'm gonna have to call you back, Bruce. So that is round one. Round two is... Interior Mandy's office, continuous action. The office is smaller than what Mandy's grown used to, and at the moment, nearly every square foot of it is covered by more moving cartons. Stacks of them everywhere. In the middle of it stands Mandy Hampton, a fine-looking, instantly likeable woman in her mid-to-late 30s. With her as assistant, her assistant Daisy Reese, a chain-smoking 25-year-old superbrain. Daisy is looking at her boss and mentor, waiting to hear her take on the office space dilemma. Mandy looks around one last time before rendering her analysis. Mandy says, This is daunting. The moving man has been waiting patiently. Moving man. This is the last load. Daisy. Hey look, Mandy, the carton's finally got here. Moving man. Where would you like these? Daisy. A corner office in the Chrysler building? Mandy. You can leave it right there. The moving man unloads the cartons and hands Daisy the receipt over the following. Mandy says, We had a plan. Didn't we have a plan? Daisy. Yes. Mandy. Tell me the plan. Daisy. Mark each carton with a letter of the alphabet. Note that letter on a list that corresponded to the description of the carton's contents. Mandy says, Right, perfect, yes, and that way we separate the materials we need right away from the stuff we can put in storage. Daisy says, Excellent. Mandy says, Yes. Daisy says, So here's my question for you. Where did you put the list? Mandy. Ah, oh, the devil's in the details, isn't it? And Daisy says, Oh man, Mandy, please try and remember where you put it. This list could save me an enormous amount of time. Mandy says, I know where I put it. That's not the problem. Daisy says, where did you put it? And Manny says, in one of these cartons. Daisy, I quit. And that is the end of the scene. So, with these two scenes under your belt, which one do you think was the final version? It seems like your your first hypothetical problem is that you know that she was removed from the cast because it did not work out. So the question is, did they make it worse or better? Like, which <laughs> which direction did they go with this? Even not being sure which version is better. I, I want to err on the side of, like, they made it worse, 
because I I yeah. feel like that first version was like she seems like a like a frustrating person but also an interesting person. Yeah. So I feel like that was the original and then that second one with her in the office was the like final one. Yeah, I'm I'm still on the fence because I feel like it would make sense for a woman who is written extremely strident to be removed for just being annoying rather than not being interesting. That there would be enough people who would say I don't like this person. Especially cuz that kind of character characterization can wind up being really one note it seems like so this other version of the character is potential i feel like there's more room to play with who that person is she's maybe not as one note although she could be written that way because if you just sort of write this person sort of overwhelmed and a little out of it and a little incompetent and then people are frustrated with her because of that that could be really annoying real fast too yeah and and do you think like would an audience get frustrated with like but I don't know, like, the West Wing had, like, CJ and, yeah. like, other, like, very outspoken women. Yeah. Because, like, there's a part of me that goes, like, oh, would it would people do the thing where it's, like, oh, I don't like this character. And really it's just, like, oh, she's a woman who has a personality and, like, opinions. Yeah. But the West Wing was a show with, you know, made of women with personality and opinions. So, ugh, Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's a difficult question, especially because you're talking about an ensemble show, which means you can't can't take the character in isolation totally because it has to depend right. on like how do they interact with other people because i think that when you dislike a character it's more like you don't like how they treat their friends or something like that tends to be what bothers you more than just them in isolation and without really knowing the rest of the ensemble well especially when you're talking about the specific time in which the show was written and the way those ensemble shows were written is probably different than the way they are now i think my my inclination on the basis of the time that the west wing came out I think that the first one was the original version and the second was the defanged version that maybe somebody would have complained about the character, even though I personally maybe find the second one a little bit more interesting, that maybe this character is more complicated than they seem. So, so yeah. I'm still, I'm still debating. Okay. <laughs> I say I have an opinion and then I don't. <laughs> I, I do like that we came to the same conclusion, but for opposite reasons, <laughs> because we both think the other scene is more interesting. <laughs> That's why I love making this comparison, especially to people who do not know the West Wing, because it can go either way in many ways and yeah. for many reasons. Yeah. The answer is, and you hit the nail on the head, the first version is the version that made it to the TV show. The version where she's getting arrested for being on the phone and refusing to get off the phone. And the version where she is in her office is the version that was the original. And Mandy was removed from the show for being too annoying and one note and strident. <laughs> because her introducing scene where she argues with the police officer because she's on the phone with Bruce and complaining about him is how her character is handled for the rest of the show. She does mm. not get any nuance... Uh, okay. She doesn't get any conversation. She is exactly that the entire way through. Yeah, that's that's weird because I think my first instinct was that the second scene sounded like it was written by a woman and the first one sounded like it was written by a man. And that's not necessarily like the gender of the person who was the actual writer, but the sort of perspective that they were expecting from the audience, which makes me think that what would happen when you showed somebody that second scene, that they would be befuddled by it or think it was too unclear and that they would want a stronger, simpler version of that character. Character. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. The exact same thing happened in the opposite direction with CJ. CJ, mm. in the very first episode, her original script version is somewhat kind of strident and she's she gets a lot of the Mandy characterization that Mandy then got in the final script. 
she is very forthright. She's jogging in the park and demands to take someone's phone because she needs to take a call. Uh, and in the final version, which I think doesn't speak to how CJ was handled for the rest of the show because she was amazing. She's Alice and Janney. She can do no wrong. But the <laughs> final version that made it when she, her character was introduced, which can, she was there for, you know, another seven seasons. She is on a treadmill talking to someone at five in the morning about how she definitely has a work-life balance. And then she gets a phone call and promptly trips on the treadmill and slams her face into the treadmill. You can see that it can go either way in terms of the first ones, you can tell that Aaron Sorkin was going for. She's a strong woman. She's like demanding to take someone's phone because she's strident. She's the mandy of, you know, not stopping talking on the phone about business even when a police officer is trying to arrest you. The other one, it's got vulnerability. And the same goes right, for when yeah. Mandy in the original script, you know, she's she's put the slip that explains what everything in all the cartons is inside one of the cartons. And Daisy then insists that she's going to quit. There's more nuance and more capacity to fail in both of those versions. And I find it interesting that the version of CJ that made it to the final version where she had those, I'm gonna trip on the treadmill and I think I've got a great work-life balance even though I'm talking to a complete <laughs> stranger to someone on a treadmill mill at five in the morning and someone's calling me about my job at five in the morning. That person was the one that made it seven seasons and the one that refused to get off the phone is the one that got removed for being too one note and annoying. Mm. But you could have seen it going either way and you guys both debated that and it's that sense of you don't know how people are going to handle these characters until they come out. And if that version had come out as it was, where CJ was strident and Mandy was more nuanced, would people still think Mandy is one note and annoying? Would she have gone on the Mandy bus in one season? Yeah, and you, you never know how much of that is affected by casting. And that's not necessarily like a question of, well, this person is a good actor and that person is a bad one, but whether or not they're cast in the right role. Because if you give somebody the wrong part, it's never going to work because they can't play the subtext. They can't add depth that isn't on the page or find the depth that was already there because they're just not set up to understand who that person is. Absolutely. Uh, a major thing that happened in the casting of that TV show is that two of the lead actors, uh, Josh and Sam, the actors were cast in the opposite roles and they pushed both of them very hard to go back into the roles that they felt worked better for them. And the weird thing that happened out of that was that one of the characters was being played by Rob Lowe and one of them was not. And one of the characters was supposed to have a fan base of excited 20-something political science students who all think he's really hot and want to take their picture with him. And one of them does not. The Rob Lowe character was supposed to be the one that had the massive fan base. And when they switched characters, they kept that fan base. So everyone <laughs> in the show for the next seven seasons ignores Rob Lowe's character because they don't think he's hot at all. But the other guy <laughs> continues to be the hot one for the rest of the seven seasons. <laughs> it's just that glory of, I didn't question it when I first watched it. Oh yeah, sure, that character's got the fan club. Why does Rob Lowe's character not have the fan club? Doesn't matter. And you just accept it when you watch it. You don't think about the fact that it was actually just an in-joke that stayed because they're playing each other's characters. Because you accept even these things that are fundamentally errors. And it's so much about the fickleness of the audience and how much we don't see what's behind the curtain. Yeah, it's 
it's really interesting. I keep coming back to this idea, like, of these characters being one note and then, like, them being more nuanced in different versions. It's like, but you don't know how an audience is going to react to that uh, precisely. But also, it's like, you can do really interesting things with a one note character if you're playing them off other actors. So it's such a confluence of, like, so many different variables that, like, you just truly can't predict. Because I was sitting here going, like, oh, but I kind of like one character, but I also like <laughs> trash villains. But, like, I, I like one note, like, characters because they end up being great foils to very, like, interesting nuanced characters. And I think it makes the one note characters even more interesting. But again, there's just so many, like, who's playing it? Who's writing that episode? Who's framing the shot? Like, yeah. it's, there's yeah. so much. Oh, I got, like, I'm- there is a very succinct <laughs> way that one of my favorite screenwriters of all time, William Goldman, who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and he also wrote The Princess Bride, because he was a man of many talents. He summed it up in one of his books as, nobody knows anything. Until the film comes out, and it's ten years later, (laughs) nobody knows anything when they have the script in their hand, when they're filming the film, when they're watching the first edit, when they're watching the reviews come in, nobody knows anything. They are all guessing, they don't know how films work, they're hoping you haven't noticed yet. And with that, I'd like to take you to... We've gone through things that are professional so far. We've gone through, you know, Iron Man and the West Wing. We're about to go into... um, Emily, I don't know how much you'd be able to fill in on the joy of unironically one of my favourite films to watch. And I'm not lambasting this film at all at any point. I promise. Could you fill people in on Theodore Rex? I so I've never seen Theodore Rex yet, but I do One day. know uh I do know of your love of it. And yes. I, I definitely remember um a bunch of the the Sunflower Station Discord all pitching in <laughs> to buy you a script of Theodore Rex. Yes, and that is exactly I'm holding it in my hand right now. <laughs> So Theodore Rex, which, as you mentioned, our Discord group very nicely pitched in to buy me a draft copy of on eBay, was a film that was the most expensive film ever to go direct-to-video. It starred Whoopi Goldberg, who attempted to sue the studio to get out of being in the film. Um, She made, I believe, $7 million out of making the film because she didn't want to be in it so bad. And it is about a cop in the future who teams up to solve crimes with a dinosaur named Theodore. He is a T-Rex. He is called Theodore Rex. In the original script, it's just called Theodore, which is a very interesting choice. Because it (laughs) it removes the joke in the title, but apparently that was the original title. (laughs) Didn't have a joke, just called Theodore. (laughs) So I have in front of me the green script, which has been handwritten in. It is the green copy of Theodore, an original script by John Batchel. It is the March 4th, 1992 script by T-Rex Productions Incorporated. As I may have said, it is a movie about a cop in the future who teams up with a dinosaur that solves crimes. Now, most people would be imagining, if you had a quote that came at the start of your script 
to sort of give people who are about to read the hard copy, hand-typed version of your script, you would go for something that's going to be thematically similar to this very family-friendly concept. The quote that goes at the very start of Theodore, an original screenplay by Jonathan Betuel about a dinosaur that solves crimes is, it is a quote that he lists as being from The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, and it is the lines, To share the hero's ordeal, each of us must carry the warrior's sword, not in the bright moments of his victories, but in the silences of his personal despair. And it is with that feeling of personal despair that I'd like to turn the page, the first page of, um, oh no, wait, you thought. But if you turn the page again, you do not yet get to the script. You get to an entirely blank page with just three words and three dots on it. And it says, a dinosaur fable, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I would like to stress once again, I have deep, unironic love for this movie. It is, in every way you can objectively state it, a bad movie. It is very genuinely bad. But the person that wrote this loved it so much. They wrote a, a quote by Joseph Campbell at the start. Then they had a dinosaur fable. This was 1992. Jurassic Park was probably out. They, they were, he was the trailblazer. Steven Spielberg <laughs> should have <Yes>. sued. <laughs> They should have sued Steven Spielberg, one of them. There is a version of this podcast that could exist where I read out the entire script. This is a live, live <laughs> reading, a stage reading of the, this draft script of Theodore Rex. I do kind the of, that's going to be for the read. Patreon. Yeah, you sign up to the Patreon, I will make you two. <laughs> it has to be star-studded, though. I mean, it has to be one of those kind of deals. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to get in. Do you have seven million to pay Whoopi Goldberg? I don't think she'd do it twice. I think she's learned that lesson. <laughs> All right, we'll get Alison Janney in and she'll... <laughs> and get the actress who played Mandy. So the very first page that isn't the introductory, where the p page where we find Theodore, where we meet Theodore, is almost a full page of description. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read the part where they describe who Theodore Rex is. Uh, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's right. A seven-foot, 2,000-pound Tyrannosaurus Rex. He has claws and a nine-foot tail. His name is Theodore Rex, and he's not as large as his extinct ancestor. Everlunt... It's been spelt wrong. Give me just two minutes. <laughs> Everluntionary. They hand-typed this. This is a labor of love he's written out. He, You've already gotten 300 words into description by the time you get to this point in the page. He isn't retyping it to get evolutionary correct. He's on a roll <laughs> <laughs> Evolutionary alternations were added during cloning to make human-sized items more user-friendly. Theodore climbs from his oversized bed with dinosaur covers in his brightly covered PJs and feeds his goldfish. He cheerfully hums and mists his plants. Scratching his head in puzzlement, he crosses the cozy, toy-filled basement apartment, which is crammed with wonderful animal and dinosaur designs. His clothes are hip and cool. Matte black silk sport coat, dress shirt, a tie which he straightens as he pads to the door in his high-top shoes. I would like to say one of the lines again. His clothes are hip and cool. <laughs> yes. Now here's the thing. At this point in the movie, we've gotten, we've gotten it clear from reading this script that the person who makes this script feels very emotionally about the concept of the warrior's sword and the bright moments of victories and the silences of personal despair. It is a family movie because it's got a dinosaur in it, and, it, you know, it's like a dinosaur that wears clothes. It's a humanoid dinosaur, so it's a family movie, but this guy feels strongly about the emotional connection, and it's clear that he's tried to go for that. In the final movie, this does not come across. It is a family movie. But you can tell he's still trying for it in some of the scenes here. A beam of moonlight falls across him, 
and Theo gazes up through a security glass skylight at the silvery moon, and then Theodore's first lines of the movie. First star I see tonight, wish I may, wish I might, have the wish I wish tonight. It doesn't say what his wish is, apart from the fact that they then show some framed pictures of him waving into camera with the Statue of Liberty behind him, and then a shot of Theodore standing at the altar, his tail entwined with that of his Rex bride as they marry. I think the marriage with the dinosaur is his wish, but it's not made explicit in the script. Maybe it would be more obvious visually. My point from all this is, this is why I love reading scripts that are not yet complete. Because this is a draft script. This is a script that they actually made for a ridiculous amount of money. And someone sat there and they read this and they said, yeah, we could make this. But when we read it out, it sounds ridiculous. This is a dinosaur that wears high-top shoes and he wants to get married to, like, his dinosaur wife. And we haven't even got to the point that it's in the future and he solves crimes. And all dinosaur murders... You know how, like, normal murders are called homicides? Dinosaur murders are called dinocides. <laughs> I was hoping you would say that, and I'm so glad. It kills me every day of my life. <laughs> but the, my point is, people invested movie money to make this. They invested a lot of money. Like, millions of dollars of money. And the reason they invest millions of dollars of money is, we're reading this and we're saying, oh, that's ridiculous. But if you think about the movies that you've watched uncritically and you think, oh, that's a really good movie, they don't have that much stupider a concept. Say a movie like E.T. The alien takes him up in the bicycle and they crest across the moon and then they touch fingers and his finger is glowing and then he goes up in the din in the in the dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different version of E.T. <laughs> yeah, the original draft script of E.T. is so... <laughs> He goes up in the spaceship and he's, like, calling... The whole thing is about the di... Oh, God. Oh, God, I almost said dinosaur again. <laughs> Rex is in there now. It's never going to come out. It's, it's got to be dinosaurs. The edit of Rex in E.T. is really interesting, and I did make it, and I will be trying to distribute it on a Patreon later. Uh, my, my point is, E.T. is ridiculous if you think about it in those terms, but Steven Spielberg made it. And everyone put their thought and love and interest behind it. And the way it is completed makes you think, okay, this is a film that works. This is a film that is heartfelt. In the vast world of, you know, if you set a million monkeys typing on a million keyboards and eventually they write Shakespeare, there is a version in the world where if you had written Theodore Rex, it would have worked. And people would think about it in the same way as E.T. We read this script and we think, oh, this is a bad movie. But the truth of it is that there are no bad movies. There are only, you know, scripts that we do not know are they going to work or not. And even bad movies like Theodore Rex, I objectively, you know, I found enjoyment from it. I've watched it with friends and we go, oh, that was a weird choice. Why did that happen? Why is he having sex with the lady dinosaur? Which does happen and happens in the original script. And you do wonder at some point that this is an interesting choice that they shouldn't have given $7 million just to Whoopi Goldberg for. But my <laughs> point is, also the cop from the future in the original script is exclusively looking online. The online version that I watched, he Whoopi Goldberg is a future cop that does future cop things. It's just generic cop. The script version is exclusively interested in harvesting organs. That's the only thing they are a cop for. It's like, you know, if you have a cop for narcotics, this is a cop for organ harvesting. Okay. Huh. 
there's a lot there's a lot of baggage with that like yeah. about this... the future world that you have just communicated with <laughs> that one fact i find it difficult because i don't want to be the person that, that makes fun of this objectively terrible script but it's one of those things i don't know where i'm going with this cut all of this out delete delete the internet like as you were reading it there was a part of me that was going like like you had said the person who wrote this really cared about it and there is a world there is a universe we could have if we believe in infinite parallel universes there is a universe out there in which theodore rex came out and was this blockbuster hit and it is a it was a cult classic and people are still talking about it today with awe and wonder like it could have been that movie and you can hear that in that like you know i mean yeah it needs to be edited more and and revisited but like there's something in that core script where like i was like oh no that's it's there i can hear it or maybe i'm losing my mind i don't know <laughs> I'm too far in the dinosaurs now that I just don't know if I've gone too far in terms of ascribing objective quality or maybe or not. Maybe it's just a bad script. Maybe this is one of those things where you're supposed to say, it's just terrible, but there was love in that. He loved that script. He wrote this with intent, and there are 120 odd pages of it. And he didn't write 120 pages because he thought it was a bad movie. He wrote them because he thought, this is a movie I want to write. And that's what brings me to the final script that I've got prepared, which this is maybe the weirdest one I could find, and I'm including the foam rubber dinosaur that wears high-top shoes in this. <laughs> what is your familiarity, the two of you, with uh, the book and the 2003 movie Holes? I have both read the book and seen the movie. I have not read the book, I have seen the film. Okay, that's as good as we're gonna need. I have not seen the movie. I have read the book. I hear the movie's very good. I have not watched it because I have read the version of it I want to read. <laughs> now, are either of you familiar with the film starring Jake Gyllenhaal called Donnie Darko? Mm -hmm. I've never seen it, but I know what it is. Yes. Now, the writer and director of Donnie Darko was approached by, I believe, Disney to write the very first draft of Holes. Now, for those who might be listening that are not familiar with either, Holes is a, it's a kind of family comedy sort of, it's, it's a young adult book, I'd say, it's fair to say. And it's about a young boy who goes to some form of juvenile detention to dig holes. And they don't explain why they're digging holes, and they don't know what the di holes are for. It's a kids movie-ish. It's, if you're a 12-year-old boy, you're probably the demographic Disney was looking for, for that movie. Donnie Darko was not that. Donnie Darko <laughs> was not intended for children. Donnie Darko was not really in any way appropriate as a concept of who do we hire to write a script for Holes. <laughs> that was for like edgelord liberal arts college guys, pretty much. That is exactly <laughs> who they wanted watching that film. Now, I'd like to give very significant props to the writer and director of Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly, for the fact that not only has he openly admitted that he didn't think it I'd like to give props to Richard Kelly because he put the entire script on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> on New what Year's God. Day 2016, he put his entire draft version from 1999 of Holes on Twitter. And I've never <laughs> been prouder of anyone in my life because 
I don't know where I would be in my life without it. If we're talking <laughs> the scripts in my life that have changed me, we could talk about how, you know, Aaron Sorkin wrote The West Wing and it was great. And, oh, you know, The Social Network and, like, uh, Nora Ephron. But Richard Kelly's Holes has taught me everything I ever need to know about writing an adaptation for film, which is don't read the source material, learn the <laughs> names of the characters, they're digging holes, great, we're gonna go with that. Just don't read the source material, it's 3am, I need to give this to Disney at 6. <laughs> <laughs> Now, his version of events, which is not mine, but I think mine's accurate, his version of events is, quote, I was very naive and I was convinced that I could convince them that this was the cooler version of the movie. And they said, no, we want to make a PG-rated faithful adaptation of this best-selling book. We have Andrew Davis directing. You're insane. Please sign this contract. We're not going to pay you any more money. We respect you. We like you. But we're moving on a different direction. And that's Richard Kelly's own take <laughs> on how people responded to this script. So, once again, I'd like to thank him so much for putting this on, on Twitter on New Year's Eve 2016, and I'd like to give you some excerpts. Now, you don't need to be familiar with Holes to understand this. I don't think you need anything to understand this. It is as it is. So, do you remember the scene in Holes where Stanley goes to the brothel? Vaguely, <laughs> yes. Wait, no. What? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Wait, you did say brothel. Yes, no, yeah, what? I said brothel. <laughs> so, about halfway through this script, Stanley goes to a brothel with all of his friends, and I believe his name is Mr. Pendansky, pays for all of them to get with the prostitutes there. I would like to read this out. Zero says, Hey Derek, is it true that three out of four women in this place is a prostitute? Derek says, You kidding me? Four out of four. You want to get laid tonight? You better be prepared to pay for it. Stanley and Pandansky approach the group. Pandansky, leave that one up to me. Zero, suddenly excited. Are you kidding me? Pandansky, I got enough for two of you. I'm trying to imagine the Disney executive, or, or probably <laughs> underling initially, who, who was tasked with reading this, who got to this part and who probably stood up for their, from their desk, walked into the, their, their boss's office, and threw it directly in the trash and said, you need to fire this man immediately. <laughs> they, they would have missed two of the best lines in cinema history. <laughs> I think there is a world where this film actually, even without any changes to the script, could have been a good movie because Donnie Darko is weird and this is weird and I feel like someone would have appreciated it out there. But the very next line in the next page of the script is X-Ray and it says in brackets, trying to get attention. And X-Ray says, hey, this one time, I masturbated six times in one day. <laughs> Remember when X-Ray says that in the holes? Did he know that they were going to be played by children? I mean, I think this is this is a really critical question. I believe at the beginning of the script, he specifies them all as 15. So slightly older than the version I believe made it in the original and in the final film. So I believe they're slightly older, but it's still about 15. I want to have a thought, and the problem is I don't know if I have one. I, yeah, I have nothing. I'm completely, like, I guess props for just going for it, but... He, yeah. He went so brave with this. So the next scene, which is two lines long, is the scene where Stanley, Pendansky, pays for Stanley to have his time with a prostitute, which I do not believe happens in the original novel. Someone can comment in and correct me. No, I'm pretty um, sure it, that, that doesn't happen. I think not. But anyway, the scene is, Stanley is now on top of her on the couch, ellipses, 
and they awkwardly begin to make love. The next line is, about 15 seconds later, Stanley climaxes. This is the end of the scene. Why? I know this is an audio medium, but I'm at a loss. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, howdy. So, I'm not gonna read all of it. There is a line, I'm not gonna say the whole scene, but I'd like to st- stress that there's a line about halfway through the, the script that is uh, Pendanski brackets screaming, Get out of the pit! It's gasoline! Get out of the pit! So we'll move on from that real quick. Uh, you don't need to know the context. There is context to it, but you neither want to know it or need to know it. It's not important. There is a gasoline pit. It goes on fire. Door. Then they try and escape from the prison. Prison thing, whatever it is. Oh, did I mention this is a nuclear apocalypse wasteland? Uh. Hmm. So all of this takes place after the nuclear apocalypse. So obviously when they escape, it's into the like post-apocalyptic world, right? So they find a Sears mall that's underground in the desert, and it's filled with skeletons. I'm just going to read this part out. They're inside the Sears mall at this point. Zero says, I've got scategories, sorry, and trivial pursuit. And X-Ray says, trivial pursuit! It then says, X-Ray then breaks into a fit of coughing. And Zero says, calm down, you have to stay still. X-Ray is dying. They are playing trivial pursuit. Uh-huh. So they move a whole load of the skeletons so they can sit down and play Trivial Pursuit, and they argue about question Trivial Pursuit, and X-Ray says as an answer, beavers. And Stanley says, is that your final answer? And X-Ray says, it has to be because I'm gonna die soon, I know it. Much like how I am very interested in the universe in which Theodore Rex was an incredible, uh, beloved movie, I'm very interested in the universe where this was the version of Holes that was made. Yeah. They are definitely not the same universe, I would say. They are not. They are not, but I am interested in both of them separately. (laughs) I would like to invite you to consider the universe that we live in right now, where someone at Disney Studios had to read this and then go into a meeting with a whole load of other people at Disney Studios to discuss this. Oh god, what I would pay to be in that meeting room. Like, what I would pay to hear that conversation. It's a lot of money. (laughs) For the record. I'm trying to imagine if there was a a version of history where this script was being sold without context now, this year, 20 years later, if you could have sold this film to Netflix. Because I think you probably could have. You could have sold it as horror for 20-something guys, like who are older than the, than the characters, but still starring children. Because there are some films that fall into that. That, that is like a genre now, right? Of kind of yeah. horror starring children, but that's definitely a play off of that kind of nostalgia for for these, as if this was a family film, but the sort of like warped and for for an older, more jaded audience. So I actually think you probably could sell this now. I just don't think you could have sold it in 99. I think you are entirely right. And I would like to follow that up with the only part of the script where most of it I'm reading out and I'm going, it's kind of ridiculous. In the face of it being a kid's movie, it's kind of ridiculous. This is the scene where it gets so ridiculous in kind of a zenith of all of this is the opposite of what a kid's movie for Disney should be. And then they punctuate it with maybe my favourite, most comedic, laugh out loud line of all time. Alan says, You ever see one of them high-speed chases on TV? And Stanley says, Sure, all the time. They videotape most everything these days. And I'd like to apologise for everything Alan is about to say, but I promise the line afterwards will make it worth it. Alan says, Yeah, well that's how I got caught. I had a girlfriend, this big titty slut from Abilene. She made PCP brownies and we went joyriding in my Camaro, and we ran it through the front of a jack-in-the-box. 
and then it says Stanley, long, sad beat. My sister got food poisoning from Jack in the Box. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a word salad that, that, oh my god, like, my sister got food poisoning from Jack in the Box after, like, he's just been, like, going on, like, the word version of a panic attack where he's just talking about (laughs) titty sluts and PCP brownies and joyriding Kamara and running it through a Jack in the Box. Are PCP brownies even a thing? Is that a thing? I don't know. I'm not sure it is. That would be wild. I don't know. I, I am very curious now about what kind of state of mind he was in writing. Like, what was this feels like uh, yeah i think you were right about the script is due in three hours and i don't know anything about disney or the source material i'm just gonna see what happens and there may potentially have been some brownies with something which was not pcp in them yeah <laughs> i'm very I, I now want like the belated documentary about this script not being made <laughs> I also, like, I'm very, I keep thinking about how, like, in terms of, like, book to movie adaptation, some of the worst offenders, but still, like, good movies in some respects are, like, Dune, where it felt like they just kind of looked at the book and they're like, oh, yeah, Desert Planet, got it. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) this is on an even higher level of, like, holes. All right. (laughs) That's a good word. I can work with that. They're in the desert and they're like, (laughs) I don't know, 15? I don't know. We're just gonna go for it. So for Dune, Dune, they managed to read the entire first page of the novel. and this, they just read the dust jacket. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what they did. He basically went through and found the characters' names. Because all the characters' names are there. Like, they're all there. But none of them are in any way... Like, Zero isn't in any way related to the character Zero. And Stanley isn't related to the character. And I don't remember Pandansky. I presume that was a character. But the Pandansky in this version is a guy who... First of all, Stanley digs up Pandansky's dead wife. I forgot to mention that part. He Hmm. digs up his dead wife in the first (laughs) hole he ever digs. And Pandansky, like, cries over the dead body. Oh, wow. And... It was the nuclear apocalypse. These things happen. Yeah, I guess. Um, And also Stanley is in the child prison because he mercy killed his younger sister after she got cancer from radiation poisoning because of the nuclear apocalypse. And then Stanley also spends a lot of time talking about how guns are bad, which I feel like in this moral universe is a very interesting stance to take. And he talks about how therapy is a lie, which is another interesting stance to take considering this is a world where nothing, like all the Sears malls have skeletons in them. Do therapists exist anymore? Discuss. Also, I gotta say, you really buried the lead with, like, the (laughs) nuclear apocalypse stuff. The reason I did that is because it is not revealed until 60 pages in. Whoa. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, they don't talk about it. It doesn't- no one discusses it until 60 pages into the script that there is a nuclear apocalypse going on. The reason I can't discuss this script in a way that makes any logical sense in terms of this happens and then this happens and then this happens is that it's kind of a lot of disjointed scenes. You could riffle through them and put them in a different order. You wouldn't really notice that I'd done it. Uh, that's not to, to say that there wasn't an emotional through line, but more to say that he was mostly just trying to create a tone than he was a clear plot. He was just trying to create this world in which, you know, people are just word salading like you said about just like, oh, I don't know, we were on PCP brownies and we went through a jack-in-the-box and Stanley's just there going guns are bad and therapy's bad and he's just like, yeah, my sister got food poisoning from jack-in-the-box. Yeah, the sister that I mercy killed after she got radiation poisoning in the nuclear apocalypse. Does anyone mention that for 60 pages? No? Okay, here we go. And also we're in an underground sismal and we're about to play Trivial Pursuit for 15 pages. And then X-Ray dies. 
And then, oh, it turns out the thing they're actually trying to dig up in the holes is a... They're kind of like silver spheres that are weapons. They they are the weapons that started the war. They at no point explain what the war is, but they say it started it all. And then they use the weapons and they kill a whole load of people and then the movie ends. Wow. Huh. I don't think I've ever been quite as speechless from this podcast. No. Than I am right now. That's a good thing. Like, I want to I wanna stress that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm just so, I'm like processing it. Yeah, I would say people have brought us some pretty wild plot twists in in the course of what they're telling us about and we have not gotten to the point previously of the disney movie that wasn't made that was about the apocalypse and a bunch of teenagers going to a brothel and then a bunch of people dying that uh, yeah yeah you win some kind of award yeah i think so (laughs) it's the only award i'm ever gonna win because this is the only thing i talk to people about (laughs) The point I was trying to make at the very beginning, I believe I've gotten away from a little, but I, I want to bring it back in terms of, I do think that in my heart this is the most interesting thing in the world in terms of, these people have all come together as a group to attempt to make movies. And the things we get are sometimes the things that are somewhat far away from that. But the things that are most interesting about it are where you can see someone's had to take very personal creative control over something, be it deciding how Paddington moves, or saying, I think Tony Stark would talk a little bit more like this, or saying, I think Stanley from Holes would have a much better time in that movie if, like, he had 15 seconds with a prostitute. And there are varying levels of ridiculousness, but they're all coming with the same opinion, which is, if we do this right, people will pay money to watch us do it. And they're all doing it in different ways. And this they're all varying levels of insanity. But they are all insanity in their own way. It's all just <laughs> making up stories. Be that a very serious story about, you know, political sort of manoeuvrings around the president. Or talking about dinosaurs from the future that solve crimes with their good friend Whippy Goldberg. They're all doing the exact same thing, when you really think about it. Has digging into these types of, like unproduced scripts or or abandoned scripts or edited scripts has it changed or affected how you approach screenwriting yes it has in the sense that i don't try and censor myself in what i'm doing in that i will sometimes write something and i'll think i don't know people might think that's a bit too absurd and then you think about it and you think, the people that do this professionally in the industry, like Richard Kelly, for however he wrote Holes, has written and directed films that people think are deeply important to cinema. And they've done that because they think out of the box. And they think out of the box sometimes by just word salading about joyriding a Camaro into the front of a jack-in-the-box. It's just sometimes these things don't work. And you've got to have the bravery to just get out there and try it. And these things, they're all iterations that we've we've listened to. They're all iterations on creative endeavours. But they've tried. And they've gone out there and they've just thrown things at the wall, even if it's 3am and, oh god, the Disney messenger is at the door and I have nothing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like, the theme for Ghostbusters was written in two days. It could have been a terrible movie. It could have been anything. It wasn't even supposed to have Bill Murray in it. All of these movies just exist in the void and then we see them and we think, oh, that it's like, you know, Marvel movies, for instance. They try and control them so hard and, like, lock every aspect down. But you can't do that with movies because the very start of their movie franchise is the antithesis of that. And with all of these movies, there's always the sense of, 
it's a lot of insane people coming together to create insane concepts. No matter how serious the concept is, they're only two steps away from a dinosaur that solved crimes. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, in the MCU, as it currently stands, with about 27 films under their belt, they only need about five more before they could really and genuinely and God's honest truth write Howard the Duck in, which they've already <laughs> done, but they could do a Howard the Duck movie, which is, in literally every way that counts, a Theodore Rex movie, and it would work inside the most tightly controlled corporate quote-unquote film tra franchise of the current era. It all comes back to Theodore Rex. It is all Theodore Rex. They can, we can do Theodore Rex in the MCU and it would work. I would like to point out that Theodore Rex in the MCU is Beta Ray Bill, not Howard the Duck. But uh, Howard the right. Duck is, he is in the, he is already in the universe. So he's already there. He's waiting. He's waiting for his yeah. spinoff. He's waiting for his, I think Kevin Smith is actually doing a Howard the Duck TV show, but in my heart, I know what truly needs to happen. Beta Ray Bill, you're entirely right. That's all that needs to happen. We just need to do a Theodore Rex in the MCU. Even the worst scripts that I can find to read out to you are not that far from the things we consider to be cinematic art. It's all just how we perceive it. I don't know if I have anything to follow up. I don't even know if I have an end question. Yeah, I feel, I like, feel like maybe yeah. I feel like maybe not not the uh, our usual pitch. I feel like that ground was covered, and I don't know that encapsulating it again would be productive. I do have a question. I'll see if I can <laughs> see if I can articulate this <laughs> now that I'm still thinking about holes. So the film industry, it, it's it's complicated, right? I mean, it, it really is like these collaboratively manufactured dreams that it's this combination of the highest of fantasy and the most practical down to earth stuff to make them actually function. So I think my question is, and I and I thought it was two questions, but I think it can be one. If you think about the script as uh, the films are films are like building a house, right? So you have somebody who comes in and does the foundation. You have people who put up the walls, who put up, who put on the roof, who do the plumbing, the people who decorate it, who who paint the walls, and then you have the option of sort of moving in and, and living there. I think my question is, is there a version of something that you have read that was sort of the foundation of one of these houses that you would most like to go into an existing film, tear it down to the studs and rebuild it from that kind of raw version? Oh my goodness. That is such an interesting question. I would want to see that done with Ghostbusters. Because the original version of Ghostbusters was a three-hander with Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and Eddie Murphy. And it was going to be an Abbott and Costello style. Like, I think it was supposed to be set in the distant future where, like, Ghostbusters are all over the place. Because ghosts are a thing in the future. <laughs> a lot and more people have died, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second. I want to talk about that logic. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I also want to talk about that logic. Hang on. So more people have died in the future? No, no. Like more, there are more ghosts over time. So if you assume that some percentage of the people who die become ghosts, the farther you get through history, the more ghosts there should be. No, okay. That tracks that. <laughs> I understand that. But if we're talking about as we are right now, we've got, say, like six billion people in the world living right now. Seven, maybe. Numbers are hard. Um, My <laughs> point is, if we say that seven billion people have died, and then we talk about like the cumulative total of all the people in human civilization who 
who have died. How many Ghostbusters do we have right now? And how many people <laughs> need to die before they're like a dime and a dozen Ghostbusters? Like, if we're talking like 7 billion people, is that like the critical mass whereupon we get one Ghostbuster? Because we have no Ghostbusters right now. We have to run some numbers on that one, I think. My point is that the Paul Rudd Ghostbusters is going to come out soon. And if it doesn't cover this exact problem, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to watch the movie. If Paul Rudd does not talk about how many people need to die before ghosts turn up, I do not want to see the movie. Paul Rudd can stand there and read out his bank account details in the movie Ghostbusters 2020, and I will not watch it unless he tells me about all the people that need to die to make one ghost. How many people are dead for one Slimer? I think that's a beautiful note to end on. I think it's the thing. Thank you again for having me on your podcast, and I'm so, so, from the deep of my heart, sorry. No, thank you so much. You have given us a gift. Uh, and we will both cherish it. And much like this, the original script for Holes, throw it right in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like people to find you online. I don't know anymore. <laughs> I don't know if they want me to, I don't know if they want them to find me. If you write in the words Ellen Apollo on Twitter, you will probably find me. I do not know my handle. It is somewhere. <laughs> Just Google me. See what you can find. There's something out there for you. Make a wish on a dream <laughs> and Eleanor will find it. Much like Theodore Rex, make a wish on the moonlight and I will appear and I will tell you my opinions about movies. Except this time you cannot switch the podcast off. I will stand <laughs> there <That's true. laughs> and I will give you my opinions and you will you will be stuck in the real world of podcasts. Because as much as you didn't want to believe it, podcasts do exist in real life, and we are coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most ominous plug energy we have ever had. I love it, though. It's so good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Guilty Treasures. You can follow us on Twitter at TreasuresCast. If you have questions or comments, hit us up there or at our email, guiltytreasurescast at gmail.com. Or post your unrevised script of the dramatization of our podcast to Twitter. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you like. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend. Or gaze up at a star like a sneaker-wearing dinosaur and wish really hard and then maybe pay us $7 million afterwards. Until next time, let the dragon in your heart be happy.